Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on John Barry, author of Leave on Helm, Rock and Roll Ramble, the inside story of the man, the music, and the midnight ramble. I'm going to paraphrase my intro from the book's jacket. Millions of music fans know Lee Von Helm as the drummer and iconic voice of the band, which feature his plaintive vocals on tracks like The Wait, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, and Up on Cripple Creek. Levon was raised in Turkey Scratch, Arkansas, and lived in Woodstock, New York for more than 40 years. He lived a life of sharp curves and steep declines. His Woodstock home recording studio burned to the ground. He battled bankruptcy. He battled cancer of the vocal cords. He lost his voice and almost lost his home. Facing foreclosure and unable to work because he could not sing, Levon scrambled to survive. At the very last minute, Thanks to his vision and the fans he counted on his entire career, his fortune began to turn. Levon soon emerged in triumph with his Midnight Ramble house concerts, intimate performances held at Levon Helm Studios in Woodstock, New York. These concerts attracted sold-out audiences and the likes of Emmylou Harris, Elvis Costello, Mumford & Sons, and My Morning Jacket. Three comeback records inspired by the Ramble, Dirt Farmer, Electric Dirt, and Ramble at the Ryman, all won Grammys. And not long after the launch of the Rambles, journalist John W. Barry, our guest today, whose writing has appeared in USA Today and on Rollingstone.com, entered the picture. John wrote about Levon and the Rambles for the Poughkeepsie Journal, serving New York's Hudson Valley. As John began to hang around Levon Helm Studios more and more, Levon invited him to chronicle the achievements and travails that were capping his life which had stretched from the cotton fields of the Mississippi Delta to the world's most famous concert halls. John was given unfettered access as he captured Levon's reflections on life and the priceless stories that set the stage for one of the most stunning comebacks in modern music. In the wake of Levon's death in 2012, John continued to work on this project, which is presented in his new book and explored with me here today. Enjoy. I just recently finished the book. What a triumph. Do tell. First of all, the the conversational sort of style of it, it, it's so accessible. But one of the many things that struck me about the story is it's like one of it's like a cavalcade of stars. (laughs) You know, they talk about it takes a village. It's just there's so many people who come through the story and who were touched by the story and impacted by the music and the experience of working with and around Levon. Like, it's just, it's kind of crazy. I, at one point I was thinking I should sit down and write the cast list. And it's just incredible. It is incredible. And it was incredible to be in it in the moment and then leave there after midnight ramble or after a recording session and to kind of arrive home, my head would be spinning for all the right reasons and in an empowering and emboldening and reaffirming way. And as a journalist, that's what gets me up in the morning. I seek out those kinds of things, whether it's being one of two people in the room or a car ride, a three-hour car ride with Levon Helm, or back when I was writing about hard news before I became a music writer at the USA Today Network to get a pothole fixed for somebody who had been calling Village Hall for eight years and getting the runaround. And we kind of hold them accountable or holding a public official accountable in another way. I seek out that impact, kind of like walking through a big snowstorm or or a drenching rain. It's like, yeah, this is what living's all about. (laughs) <laughs> well, 
before we dig further and start to explore the the story of the Midnight Rambles and the story of the barn, could we rewind a little bit and talk a little bit about you and your journey and how you came to journalism and writing and music? Who is John and where is he from and how did this all start? Sure, I can do that very easily. I was born in the Bronx. All four grandparents came from Ireland as part of the great American dream, start a better life. My mother's parents came over on a boat with four kids, and then she was born here. I mean, in my life, that's crazy. God bless them all. My dad was a New York City police captain, retired as a captain. My mother was a nurse, kind of your archetypal Irish-American story, one of five kids. My mother wanted eight. (laughs) And I grew up in the New York City suburbs in a very bucolic environment. You know, every house in the neighborhood looked the same. Started washing dishes at the local restaurant when I was in ninth grade. Could walk there, could walk home. Always loved writing from the jump. First grade, second grade, I loved it and I excelled at it. Not to boast, I I did well. I was in the enriched English classes or whatever they called it. I never made it to AP with English. But it always did come easily to me. I always just loved it. I don't know. Some people, they like to run marathons or scale the the sides of mountains to get that rush. Writing gives me a rush. It releases endorphins, and I just can't get enough. And that kind of set me on the path to journalism. In high school, in 12th grade, they offered, for seniors, you could take an elective various electives. And one of them was journalism. That kind of greased the wheels. But I remember we were publishing a one-page double-sided newspaper kind of at the end of the semester. I was approaching my first Grateful Dead concert. The whole school was going down. It was in early April 1987. And a few weeks before that, Metallica had played at the Brendan Byrne Arena at the Meadowlands outside of New York City, which was kind of our go-to concert arena, hockey arena. It it was something with the Metallica fans kind of going crazy. They were tearing seats out of the arena and burning cars in the parking lot. So the rumors going around school was no tailgating, no fun. The dead show was going to be no fun. I didn't know I was writing an op-ed, but I wrote an op-ed for our little one-page newspaper saying, thanks all you metalheads, you ruined it for all us deadheads. And the morning that published, I could not take two steps down the hallway at Clarkstown South High School with someone grabbing me and saying, me and my heavy metal friends are coming for you, or way to go, John, you really spoke up for us deadheads. All day long, I was getting this feedback, and it was just like I would find with filling that pothole. And that's really either consciously or subconsciously, that's when I said, I know what I want to do. All right. So there's a lot in there that you cover because I'll I'll take you through a few sort of parallels. I'm also the child of a retired police captain. I grew up in the Northeast as well. I'm from outside of New Haven, Connecticut. Don't quite have the same immigrant story. Our families came over much earlier, but also spent a lot of time sort of on the highways and visiting the arenas of the tri-state area. So whether it was, you know, the spectrum in Philadelphia up to the Garden in Boston or Providence Civic Center, Springfield, Brendan Byrne. Very familiar with that parking lot. (laughs) Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah. So when you say the suburbs of New York and you say the Bronx, to me as somebody from that area, I think Riverdale or Mamaroneck or where were you? Helen Bay. Helen Bay. Beautiful. Yeah. Really idyllic. People don't understand that part of the city. They really don't. And mind you, I was two when we left, so... I don't really have any memories. I can still say I was born in the Bronx. My memories are more of Rockland County and Bardonia and the suburbs. But you're right. People really don't have a grasp of that part of the city. Yankee Stadium will kind of get you there and expose you to the Bronx. But it's a pretty far away from Midtown Manhattan and Broadway and all that. Yeah, I always, when I lived out there, I lived in Manhattan and Brooklyn for the better part of 20 years. And when it came to Riverdale, there were people who liked to say they lived in Riverdale and wouldn't say it was part of the Bronx. And then there were people who lived in the Bronx and liked to remind people in Riverdale that they also lived in the Bronx. 
Yeah. <laughs> the so Bronx funny. is a complicated place, or it can be. It's a microcosm of sort of America. I would, I, I, I almost feel you, you have the entire story of disparity in that few square mile area. It's everything you need to know about what's happening in our country. You really do. Yeah. So you're a young adult, you're into music, you're getting the writing bug. Those two things don't quite stay together though. So you move into journalism, but you're not a rock critic. You don't pursue that path. What what are you doing? You know, somewhere deep in my heart, I knew if I really wanted to do what I wanted to do, and I didn't even know what that was in my early 20s, I had to go cover planning boards and I had to write about potholes and protests and police reporting. So I went to a few different colleges, kind of really didn't know what I was doing, knew I wanted to write, ended up at the State University of New York at New Paltz, which is in Ulster County, probably about a half hour from Woodstock, two hours from the city, New York City. And somehow I ended up back at my hometown paper as a cop reporter. I started out, I'm very proud to say I started out writing obituaries for 10 bucks an hour on Saturdays and Sundays, very short staff. So I keep my ear on the police scanner, get my obituaries done, run out, and pretty soon I got hired. Did just the municipal beats for eight years, and I feel really, you know, got my chops together, got some nice corruption, some public, not that public corruption is nice, but we were able to hold (laughs) multiple public officials accountable. So I started there in 1995. In 2002, the music writer position came open at the Poughkeepsie Journal, which is about halfway between New York City and Albany, New York. Same company, the Gannett Company, the USA Today Network. So the kind of the application and the transfer was easy. Some people might know Poughkeepsie as home of the chance where the police played to four paying customers in 1978, kind of legendary status. But the town of Woodstock would be on my beat. And that's all I needed to hear because I could take it from there. So I applied. I had eight years of solid hard news experience and I got the job. I was already living up that way because I was still living in the New Paltz area, which is about 20 minutes from Poughkeepsie. So it all just kind of worked out. I was off to the races. So I understand the allure of Woodstock as a music fan and as a writer because of the history. But in the mid-late 90s, what was resonating for you then? Why was that a place that would have been an interesting draw? What was going on in the region? I can tell you clearly it wasn't so much what was going on at the time in the region. But I can tell you for some reason, and I don't even know where this started or what the, the origin of it was, but I was always fascinated and drawn to the Woodstock Festival of 1969. As a teen, I don't know why, but I'm sure it had to do with a half a million people coming together and it working logistically. It was a lot of people. And for the most part, yeah, the rain, the mud, but for the most part, it worked. And for some reason, I cannot tell you why that always resonated very loudly with me. It always struck a chord. And I was always drawn to all things Woodstock in my heart and my brain and my soul. And then, of course, you have the town. When I was going to SUNY New Paltz, we'd go up there and see bands at the Tinker Street Cafe or the Bearsville Theater. It just seemed like I was getting closer and closer and closer to the heart of Woodstock. And kind of with writing in general, I didn't know why I was being drawn to this big picture but I just followed it. It's where my heart led me. So now I've kind of got this writing thing that I'm getting paid for, and I'm inching closer and closer to the heart of whatever Woodstock is, the town, the festival, the spirit, the allure, the mystery. I don't know what it is. I really just followed my heart. It's such a funky area too. Even today with, you know, the sort of the influx of money from the city and being a bit of a bedroom community into, you know, far even up into Ulster County. But it's still, I think we're similar in age to think back to sort of grown up in the shadow of that era of the Woodstock era and to have walked some of those towns, even Newburgh or to your point, Woodstock, that whole area, to think that 500,000 people came through there over a long weekend in 1969, it's, it's really, it's abstract 
to the point of meaninglessness. But when you're up there, you really get the sense of like, Jesus Christ, like it really was a two lane highway. It was not a massive built up place. The idea that a half a million people converge there, it's almost hard to, to dimensionalize. It really is. It's really hard to put into words. I'm about an hour, maybe an hour and change from the Woodstock site in Bethel now. And I might just take a ride out there in the middle of the week and just do what you're hitting upon. They, they have this monument at the corner. It's an, you know, it was an alfalfa field when Michael Lang approached Max Yasger. So at the corner of that field, they have a little monument and a couple of picnic tables and you can kind of park there. You just hit the nail on the head. I'll just go there and gaze and think about those historic pictures in my head. I was just out there on August 20th to see Phil Lesh from the Grateful Dead playing with members of Levon's old band, Levon Helms' old band. It's just tradition and religion for me to go to that spot and gaze and just kind of like in a dumbfounded way, maybe Mount Rushmore is your thing to be dumbfounded at or the Grand Canyon or what have you. But for me, it's that Woodstock concert site, that hill in Bethel, New York. That's my Grand Canyon. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting perspective that it is a, it's a historic American site. Okay, you're in Poughkeepsie. You take on the music writing gig. And your universe and the Levon universe seem like at that point they might have been on a collision course. <laughs> Unavoidable. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, absolutely. I'd always been a band fan. I had seen the second incarnation of the band in, I think it was 1993. A buddy of mine was going to Northeastern University they were playing a concert there. It's interesting because I love the band music and the albums that we all love. But for me, the second incarnation of the band and the album Jericho and the, you know, that era is, is special in its own way. By the time I showed up, it was 2002. Levon had been sick. There were rumblings that he's holding these concerts in his house. Me and my peers, who considered ourselves musical aficionados, we couldn't quite wrap our heads around it. He's playing, he's performing in his house. You know, what's going on? We knew he wasn't singing because he had cancer of the vocal cords. You know, anyone who works at a newspaper will tell you that you start each day with about 39 things on your plate, and you're lucky if you get to two and a half of them. I was just anxious to get to it, to get to the bottom of it. And the first kind of ramble performances, midnight ramble performances, were in early 2004. And then they were sporadic. Around October 2004, I pick up the phone and this woman is on the other end of the line. And she says, my name's Barbara O'Brien and I'm working with Levon Helm. He's been holding these midnight ramble concerts at Levon Helm Studios in Woodstock. It's no secret he hasn't been singing because he's had cancer. But this Saturday, uh, it's looking like he might sing for the first time in years in public. Would you like to do an interview? So I joked that it was in a, like a, a cartoon. I had like, I was like the roadrunner. I zipped out of my chair and the phone was still suspended in the air. I said, heck yeah, I'll come right up. And I remember we set something up. It was a Monday afternoon, about five or six. And I got the directions, a road in Woodstock, Plockman Lane. I didn't even know existed. And there's Levon Helm Studios, this huge, huge structure in the shape of a big barn. Levon grew up in Turkey Scratch, Arkansas, in his family's cotton farm. And it was just this massive building. You go inside and you feel like you're in an Adirondack Mountain chalet. And there were all these people coming and going and kind of instruments around. And I was just kind of hanging around and waiting to get to the bottom of this story. And Amy Helm, Levon's daughter, comes out and we chat and those were the days of your pen and your notepad. So I was just taking notes and Amy and I finished up. And a few minutes later, here comes Levon. That was when we met for the first time. It was a, that Monday evening. And to say I was speechless would be the understatement of my lifetime. He was a very yes, sir, no, sir kind of guy. Just the politest person you'd ever want to meet. And here I am kind of like a gog, but I'm just me and him in the room the guy from the band and all of that. I wrote the story 
And that was that. And then we reconnected the following January, I think it was. He was actually doing a Blues in the Schools program at a high school over by me in Poughkeepsie where he brought like a, a quartet. And I caught up with him again and met Barbara again. And I was working in the feature section of the Poughkeepsie Journal. So, you know, I told my editor, there's a good story for the features front for tomorrow's paper. I get back from the assignment and, you know, at a newspaper, kind of like three, four, five, they're putting together the paper for the next day. And I don't know if something sells through or what, but my Lee Von Helm story anchored the front page the next day. And they were just like, just kind of write it, broaden it, make it a front page story, which was no problem. And apparently that resonated with Levon and the team up in Woodstock that here's this guy, we hardly know him. And wow, he put Levon on the front page, which I didn't do. <laughs> but I found out later that that really struck a chord with everybody. And Levon at this point was really still recovering. He was skinny, gravelly, talking in a gravelly voice. He was still recovering from radiation treatments. And then I just started going to these house concerts called the Midnight Ramble on Saturday nights. You know, it was, imagine a cross between a, a, a county fair and a Saturday night revival. It's just fire pits and potluck table and friends and people you haven't seen. And I saw Judd Hirsch at the potluck table one night. There goes Joan Osborne. Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers is up in the loft watching and singing along. There's Chris Robinson dancing with his friends. No security, no nothing. It was insane, insane. I just started hanging around more and more. At that point in my journalism career, I could pitch a pretty good story. You know, here's this guy. He came from nothing, won it all, lost it all, and was winning it all back. Because when Levon was diagnosed circa 1998 with cancer of the vocal cords, here's a guy who's been singing to earn a living since he was in his late teens playing with Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks going up to Canada. You know, this is how this guy earned his living. Now he can't sing. You know, people want to hear the weight and Ophelia and up on Cripple Creek and he can't sing. So venue owners, oh, you know, he, he can't do a few of the old ones kind of thing. The jobs became fewer and fewer. He filed for bankruptcy multiple times. And he was on the cusp of losing Levon Home Studios to the bank, foreclosure, like it was in progress. And the quote in the book is, you know, we were going to go out with a bank, have some rent parties, and people wanted to start paying to come and get in. That was the evolution of the Midnight Ramble, which when he was a kid in Arkansas, They'd have these kind of traveling medicine shows pass through with the flatbed truck and the dancers and the band and, you know, the MC. And then they'd have kind of a saucier show towards midnight for the adults. You could pay like an extra half a dollar or something. And they called it the Midnight Ramble. So he kind of named it after that. And boom, they were off. And it, it just started to, to, to get traction and, and get legs. Jimmy Vivino from uh, Late Night TV, the fat foe, Conan O'Brien, he and Levon were very close. And Jimmy would come by when Levon kind of was not having too many visitors, kind of alone, recovering. And they would kind of jam a little. And Jimmy was instrumental in starting the Midnight Ramble. And then you have Larry Campbell come on up. Larry was with Bob Dylan's band for a bunch of years then the horn section goes from two to five. Now you have Howard Johnson, who played with John Lennon and was at the last waltz coming in. Clark Gayton, who's now with the E Street Band on trombone. Byron Isaacs, who was playing in Amy Helms' band, Olabelle. Byron is now touring the world with the Lumineers. You know, Byron was Levon's bass player. So little by little, I think in the book, Jimmy Vivino hits the nail on the head. And he says the Levon Helm Band was an all-star baseball team playing football. <laughs> unpack that what's the significance of that well he was saying that you had all these people kind of coming together from different genres different areas you know here you have jimmy he's he really values tradition and, and the blues and you know he's coming from one spot then you have larry campbell who grew up in new york city but is 
the best fiddle player, the best mandolin player, the best guitar player. Levon once told me, he said, I thought Larry was the best mandolin player I'd ever seen. Then he picked up the violin. Then he picked up the guitar. Then you have Eric Lawrence and Steve Bernstein in the horn section, two jazz guys coming in. Jay Collins from Greg Allman's band, Greg Allman and Friends. And you just had this kind of combination coming together and it worked all under Levon Hill, who, as Jimmy says, he was the leader of the band, but Larry and Jimmy were kind of the co-musical directors. So Levon didn't really want to lead. He, you know, it was all for one and one for all, just like the band was for him. It all worked. I can count on one hand the number of Midnight Rambles I missed between, say, 2005 and 2012 when Levon passed. I would walk out of there week after week after week, Saturday night after Saturday night saying, man, that was so good. They're never going to top that. And then the next week I would leave and keep saying the same thing every Saturday night. It was just explosive. And you have to understand there was no stage. It was a recording studio. So the band, the audience, they're on the same level. If you wanted to, you could le reach over and tap Levon on the shoulder. It was that intimate. So it really just blew up the whole live music model long before this whole house concert thing. We'll be back with more Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media, after this break. And now, back to Spotlight On. From your perspective, what was it about Levon? Like, what did he either possess as a character, or what did he represent to people that made all of these great artists and other people sort of want to be in his orbit and sort of in a real way care for him i think he would based on reading your book i would say he might not like that characterization but ultimately that's what this was right they were it was people who rallied around the idea and the person and i wonder could you unpack that a little bit Levon had a great quote in the book, one of my favorites. He was talking about show business, and he said something to the effect of, you're better off in life, he was saying, you're better off just keeping your word and not expletive-ing with people who don't. And that kind of sums him up. He had no use for fame. For how famous that guy was, he just didn't care about it. He had no use for it. Larry Campbell says in the book, all he was interested in is, is who you were as a person or a musician. He kind of sought the same things out in people that you and I do. He wasn't looking for any praise. He wasn't looking for any pedestal. I think it was his roots. You know, the guy grew up in poverty on a cotton farm in the Mississippi Delta in Turkey Scratch, Arkansas. In the chapter about Arkansas in the book, I can't remember if it's Mary Cavett or Annalee Amston, Annalee from The Wait. And they said, we were all poor. We all had to share because nobody had anything. Levon would be the first one as a kid to give you his co-money. That's a pretty strong foundation from which to have your life emerge, where you just look at it with your neighbors because you're all poor. And it's not like anyone's thinking that anyone's extra generous. It's just what everyone did to kind of get by and survive. And he seemed to never lose those ideals. You know, we all get older. We lose touch with where we came from or who we were, or maybe we start making more money or we get attention at work or, or maybe we achieve fame through what we do. And we get so far away from where we come from. And, you know, that time in your life when your formative time, when you're learning about values and what's right and what's wrong. And he always seemed to, in my opinion, stay really close to that time in his life. Larry Campbell in the book says, it's amazing. He lived in Woodstock for 40 plus years and he never lost an ounce of that turkey scratch Arkansas accent. How is that? Well, one reason maybe is because he never lost touch with who he was long before he became famous in the band. And that really resonated with people. Not to mention, here's a guy who walks the walk, loses perhaps the most identifiable voice in 20th century rock music. I mean, the night they drove all Dixie down, you got to be kidding me. And this guy loses his voice. 
that iconic voice from you know, the there's West. something like biblically profound about that. There really is. It is biblical. And then he bounces back. You know, it's the bottom of the ninth with two out and a full count. And all he does is he turns the doorknob on his front door and says, well, just come on in. Let's just play here. And part of the reason was he couldn't get gigs anywhere else. That certainly resonated with me. You know, I have my, I wouldn't call them idols, but I have those people that I enjoy their music and I look up to them and I think how cool it would be to be them. But man, forget it. Leave on Helm. Even if I had never met him and worked with him on this book and gotten to know him and had hours and hours of conversation with him, there's just something about that guy. Success is great and triumph is great, but when life kind of gets you in its claws and you live to tell the tale and you live to share your experience with other people, there's just something about that. It just oozes everywhere. You want to soak that up. And that's, that's what you got at the Midnight Ramble. The Midnight Ramble would throw its arms around you and you would throw your arms around the Midnight Ramble. And I got to tell you, I know this because I experienced it for years. You'd enjoy that buzz until about Wednesday morning. And then about Wednesday night, you could start looking forward to the next one. And that's for me and the thousands and thousands of people that's why we kept going back. You know, Levon Helm, hearing him sing after he recovered from the radiation, it was like throwing your arms around a big oak tree in the middle of the forest where there's not another soul. And that's, that's what it was that attracted people. That's what drove the Midnight Ramble. And that's what I worked to capture in this book. What were the precedents or the antecedents to the Midnight Ramble, if any. And are there any artists that have taken something like that model for themselves? Is there anybody else doing something similar now? It's interesting because the whole recording industry, digital age, I'm an album guy. I always will be. But we don't really live in an album world anymore. You've heard so many people say this. I used to like to go to the record store and you'd get an LP and then you'd peel the plastic off and read the liner notes. And we were fine with having to flip a record. Now it's, it's all in my phone, which is convenient and I don't lose things. But the whole digital single iTunes, yeah, it's convenient. And hey, bravo for the innovation of it. That whole thing... Whether it was literally or not, I always looked at the Midnight Ramble as kind of a response to that. The recording industry, the music business, it was kind of unraveling, in my opinion, in a way. We were really losing something important. The album, this chronicle, this story, Sgt. Pepper, the White Album, or Big Pink, these were like novellas or stories, and I, I feel like we've lost that. So I always looked at the Midnight Ramble as a response to that bringing it all into someone's living room, many acoustic instruments. Here's Levon playing with his daughter. Here's Larry Campbell and Teresa Williams, husband and wife, playing together in the Levon Helm Band. Family and friends, someone's living room, acoustic instruments, traditional songs, the potluck table down in the garage where they sold the merch, which Levon called the company store, which I always found hilarious. I always felt it was a real response to what was going on in the world at large with music to say, you know what, we're going to we're going to kind of reel it all in. So that's what I see as kind of what preceded the Midnight Ramble and created the conditions for it as a response. The other part of your question, Phil Lesh of the Grateful Dead, Larry Campbell, when he was in Bob Dylan's band, I went to these shows. It was Bob Dylan and Phil Lesh and friends. They played the Brendan Byrne Arena was one of their shows and loved him. Had not known Larry yet. This was pre-Ramble by many years. And then through that, Phil Lesh asked Larry to play with him at Phil Lesh and Friends. Fast forward and Phil came to the barn, as they call Levon Helm Studios. And I got to tell you, as someone who has seen over 100 Grateful Dead concerts, to hear Phil Lesh's, we used to call it, Phil would drop the bomb with his bass. 
at Levon Helm Studios through the floor up through your being was really something else. So Phil came to Levon's with his two sons, played with his two sons, Larry and Teresa and Justin Gwip, chief engineer for Levon Helm Studios on drums. Amazing, amazing show. So what does Phil do? He goes back home to California and he opens a club which he, I can remember when the statement came out from Phil saying, I, I was inspired to do this by Levon Helm's Midnight Ramble. Now that club has unfortunately closed in the Bay Area, but I mean, you want to talk about a cause and effect and there you have it. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that sort of spider web because when you were telling the Phil story, I was also thinking there was there was that time, I don't know if he still has it, but but Weir had that studio too that he was sort of working out of and doing webcasts from. TRI. Yeah, yeah. And then you mentioned Justin Gwip, and he plays with Yorma, and Yorma has his sort of compound out in Ohio. Again, all these are a little bit more, I, I think, sort of like commercial and intentionally business-like than The Barn. But still a very similar model, like sort of making the artist, removing some barrier between the artists and the audience and the other artists and just sort of this like accessible nature of the music, bringing down the scale, taking it from sort of stadiums and arenas and putting it in sort of living room or more humane settings. Yeah, I think it might get back to this whole reaction thing, all this seismic change in the recording industry. Those are all perfect examples. I mean, you can go to Fur Peace Ranch and get taught guitar by Yarma Kalkinen. You're kidding me. I know. I mean, <laughs> come on. Uh, yeah. it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, we had, we had Yarma on summer before last, and he sh he's an incredible human being. And, and it's, you know, we could go down the whole rabbit hole of like how some of these artists incredibly important artists, maybe even leave on amongst them. People don't really understand like the Jefferson Airplane were a monumental group. You know what I mean? Like a phenomenally massive, influential group, but their legacy hasn't necessarily been preserved that well. The albums themselves are a little bit dated sounding, you know, even though the songwriting's great, they just, they weren't produced well, even for that time. So they didn't, they didn't really, they're not, they're not one of those gateway bands the way say a Led Zeppelin is, or even now the Grateful Dead's become that way. But the, that these, profoundly important artists are so accessible like and they're still out there working it's amazing talk about jefferson airplane they played woodstock go see hot tuna with jack and and justin yarma lived in the woodstock area for a good number of years he and rick danko actually would do duo shows at this little bar called uncle willie's in kingston new york right which is right near woodstock i mean just crazy this tiny little bar Go see Yarma today, whether it's Acoustic Hot Tuna or Electric with Justin. For me, it's a very similar being out in the forest, throwing your arms around the oak tree kind of thing. I mean, just the songs and the legacy and the tradition and all that, that, that you can't find words to describe. A lot of it, I would argue, is the foundation of who we are. To get back to Levon, we all loved the music and the rambles were blast and the horn section was just explosive. But you think about who he was and what he went through, and I just can't get away from this enduring American spirit that defines us all and binds us all together. I don't care who you are. We're all in this together. And you look at this guy from the heart of the South, the Mississippi Delta, all he wanted to talk about was tractors and college football. His breath and his reach, for me, it just offered us a window into who we are. Resiliency, comeback, never quitting, arts, culture, history. It's a little overwhelming, in fact. And I tried to crank this into the book where I could, but it was a big bite of the apple. And, you know, the same thing with Yarma. It's like, you want to learn something about who we are as a nation and a people and what defines us and where we're going. Man, let's talk about Levon Hill because he really, he went through it all and he walked the walk. Yeah. Do you happen to know or do you have any special insight to say whether or not, was Levon triumphant when he passed? Was he happy? Did he, did he, did he feel what had been accomplished there? Tony Lebeau, who ran Levon's website, 
just a guy, this is a great quick story from the book. When people were buying domain names, you know, tomcruise.com, then they call up Tom Cruise and say, hey, for $3 million, I'll give you back your domain name. So Tony, with a very big heart, he got a hold of levonhelm.com. And he said, I'm just going to hang on to it. If they ever wants it, I got it and I'll give it to them. And he ended up running the website for Levon Helm Studios where people bought tickets, bought merch. Levon would earn his revenue through the website. Tony more than once said that Levon told him more than once, this is the happiest time of my life right now during the midnight ramble. In the book, he's quoted as saying, I quoted him saying the band was a miserable deal. Albert Grossman wanted to keep us away from everybody, just like Bob Dylan. And, you know, after the first three records, it was live from, you know, where greatest hits. I think from where I'm sitting and for having gotten to know that guy really well, I have no reason to doubt Tony LeBeau saying that that was Levon's happiest time of his life. Yeah. As we wind down in our time together, I, I wanted to ask you if you could maybe tell some anecdotes, and I don't want to give away the book, obviously, if I could just bring up some of the characters, some of maybe the the people who weren't as famous to just a music fan, but who were so pivotal in the story of the Rambles. And I, I wonder if you could you could talk first about who John O'Neill was. Sure. He is an attorney and a huge fan of the band, just like with everybody. And they called it Team Levon. These were the volunteers, the not famous people who were just fans who one way or another found their way to Levon Helm Studios. So John, just through a, a twist of events, I know he had the, I believe it was the cover of music from Big Pink was the wallpaper on his computer at work. And that got him talking to somebody who had a connection up at Levon Helm Studios. John ends up going to a ramble. He knew somebody who knew somebody who was close to Levon. Through that way, he kind of got to know people up there. And it's a great story because it was something where he and his wife were supposed to go to dinner with another couple and he gets ramble tickets and have, they have to cancel with the, the couple. So they schedule it for the next two weeks. He goes up to the Ramble, gets invited back two weeks later, so somehow has to cancel dinner again, and they end up canceling. As he said, it was, you know, good luck had just stung me. <laughs> this is when Levon was, uh, he had filed multiple bankruptcies and had the idea for the Ramble, and John was instrumental in going to a U.S. bankruptcy judge in Poughkeepsie and advocating and representing Levon and his wife, Sandy, saying, yes, we have these financial burdens, this debt, but we have a plan. We have a plan to get out of this debt, and it all revolves around this thing called the Midnight Ramble, and here's our plan to generate revenue. And by the way, you know, we're starting to work on a record, which would be Dirt Farmer, which was Levon's comeback album and won a Grammy. So here it starts with the album cover for music from Big Pink on John's wallpaper at his law firm in Westchester County to representing Levon Helm in bankruptcy court, which was a, a major turning point for Levon's career, his financial footing, and the ability to get that managed so he could focus on his music. As I was reading about that in the book, something that struck me, you tell the story of how John presented the plan essentially to the bankruptcy judge and how it was it was the way to restructure and reorganize their financial life and their business. The way it landed for me was really what they were saying, though, was that Levon wanted to work his way out of it. Like he was willing to work and he wasn't saying like, I want to get out of jail free card. Please absolve me of all my debts so I can start all over again. He was saying, this is what I do and I'm going to take what I do and I'm going to apply it sort of in the service of writing the ship for myself. And I, I thought that was, that was a very profound, I don't know, it just really landed for me that it, this was about a man who, who was not looking for sort of a free ride. He was just looking for the chance to do what he did. I think Barbara O'Brien uh, says in the book, he wanted to make music. He wanted to act in movies. You know, he was in Coal Miner's Daughter and the right stuff. And he wanted to get paid for it. 
he wanted to to be compensated for his craft. And you couldn't be more right. You know, Barbara, when she came into the picture, when things were really bleak, pre-midnight ramble, she wasn't quite sure why she had been invited over to Levon Helm Studios. You know, she was thinking, does he want me to do a fundraiser, blah, blah, blah. And either he said or she figured out pretty clearly that he was just not going to go to anybody with his hat in his hand because it's just not who he was. Levon Helm certainly was not a, I'm going to take the easy way out kind of guy. Yeah. And Barbara was the other person I wanted to ask you about. It It seems like you can question whether or not it would have been someone who would have stepped into the role, but it was her. Could you just quickly explain for listeners who Barbara was and sort of, and, and did she even have a functional title? What, what did Barbara O'Brien do? It's funny because I had been going up to the rambles for some time. It was still very early and getting to know Barbara and Tony and John O'Neill and the team. I never knew Barbara to have a title. I, I didn't really dwell on it or anything or talk to her about it. But I do remember clearly I was doing some story and I was getting ready to, I was interviewing her on the phone about the Poughkeepsie Journal and I was getting ready to hang up. And somehow she made a point of saying, manager for Levon Helm. And I thought to myself, oh, that's new, you know, that she's being called his manager. So that was her title. You know, she was Levon Helm's manager. You have to understand that Barbara, through all of the time with the Ramble and even till today, works for the Ulster County Sheriff's Office. She's very high up in the administration of the Sheriff's Office. She's not a law enforcement officer but she's way up there in terms of the day-to-day of the operations there. So she didn't come from the music world, but she's a very involved person in the community. She's very active on social media. She's, she's always, whenever I go up to Woodstock, I tend to run into her. She's just out. Somehow it clicked. She has or had family members in the military. So before the ramble started, she several years in a row was staging these military appreciation days and she got to leave on to say, hey, would you perform at these? And that happened a couple years. So they got to know each other. As I explained in the book, she literally got a call out of the blue from Levon saying, can you come over? So here's Barbara, kind of a, a organized, very community minded, knows a lot of people in the community through the sheriff's office. Here you have Levon. I, I referred to it as Levon being the Commodore of the Navy and Barbara being the captain of the ship. You know, Levon, it just seemed like he had this vision and he knew he want, when he met Barbara, he saw her fitting into the role that she ultimately took. Levon said, Barbara and I, we just hit it off from the jump. They got along and it was very interesting to be in the room with the two of them when they were talking business and to see their dynamic and to see Levon listening to Barbara share her opinion on whatever the issue was they're talking about. They were a good team, but she was chop, chop, all business, wonderful person, just a heart of gold, a very big heart, but chop, chop. You know, I saw her just all business many, many, many times. I say in the book that if you were ever at a midnight ramble, chances are you ran into Barbara putting out fires here and there. And she could have been pleasant. She could have been stern. She had one goal, and that was to, to, to give Levon the space to focus on his music. She was keeping an eye on the logistics. I don't know if Levon was still with us, if he would be able to say, this is why it worked. Barbara, the same thing. Barbara says in the book, Levon was just at a time in his life where this kind of worked. He had people who were in that capacity previously. And that's where Levon was when he met Barbara. But she is something else. Absolutely. So the, I guess the last question I'll ask before, before I let you go is, what role or how would you characterize the role of, of Levon's family in this story, both Amy, Sandy, and what, what did that mean to him to have, to be surrounded by them? I would say that there was nothing more important to Levon Helm than his family, to see him and Amy perform together in the Levon Helm band. You know, there were portions of the ramble where Levon would 
get off the drums and get on a stool over with Larry and Teresa. And Amy would sit on the drums and play drums for a couple of songs. I would just be front and center watching, not missing a note. That's why I was there for the music. To see them connect on stage, you could just feel the, the room's collective heart grow three sizes. I hate to use the Grinch as an example because it's not a good example, but I just remember in the Grinch when they started, Whoville started singing the song and his heart grew by three sizes. <laughs> That's what happened in the room when you saw Levon and, and Amy connect on stage. Levon's wife, Sandy, his partner, his wife, Levon and I traveled often to shows. And that was just one of the places where I would record our conversations, which were then used to write the book. So we would travel two hours to the Beacon Theater or three hours to Boston or five hours back from Vermont. And Sandy, from time to time, would make us these ham sandwiches that, man, there's just nothing like a good homemade ham sandwich. Or she'd make something else for me and Levon and the driver. And halfway through, Levon would bust them out and start handing them out to, to me and Chris, the driver. It was just very special family, non-rock star kind of thing. And I'm just kind of getting chills <laughs> thinking of those sandwiches or, or, or Sandy would make her Aunt Joyce's pound cake, which, oh man, so good. It just felt like me and my family or something my mom would have done when I was a kid or, you know, here's an extra ham sandwich for you going to school. And when I think of Sandy and Levon, that's what I think of. Those ham sandwiches on those road trips were just, beyond special. That's beautiful. Thank you for making time to do this. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the book. There's so much more to glean from this story and from all the characters involved. So we're going to really encourage listeners to go get themselves copies. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. And I always love talking about Levon Helm and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book. This was a great conversation. So I thank you. Thank you so much, John Barry. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson, and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard here, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at SpotlightOnPodcast.com or at SpotlightOnPod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.